you do for us and all that you've given us. Pray will bless us tonight as we come again to your word and study the history of the church. Help those that are here, Father, to grasp the concept and the understanding that they can better put it all together. And Lord, uh, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Well, last time we started, um, as you have heard me say many, many times, and I make reference to this in just all the time, the greatest period of church history uh, within the seven, and of course, that's the Philadelphian church period. Let's begin reading again in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, and then we'll, we'll continue where we left off last week. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is, that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word and, and not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast with thy hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh, what I make a pillar in a temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven uh, from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, we talked about this, got into this last time, and I talked to you about the... Uh, aspect of uh, the Philadelphian church period. It's called the Church of the Open Door. And uh, we saw, you know, uh, in our lessons leading up to this, that this church really breaks loose after the Reformation when the Roman Catholic Church loses its grip on the world. There's a couple, a lot of things I want you to see about this church period. Um, and like I said, if you notice, we when we're coming through church history, the first you know, a couple of months, it went pretty smooth, pretty quickly. We moved right along. But once we got into uh, the, the Dark Ages, uh, we start bogging down. And now we're really going to bog down because there's just so many dimensions of this that you need to see. I mean, I could teach the Philadelphian Church Age to you in a night, but I would never be able to do it justice. If you really are going to be a student of history, these are the things you really have to see. Um, and I want you to see, you know, because what we're about to look at is, you know, God's complete plan, how that he saw everything on planet Earth. Bible says back in Isaiah, I think it's in Isaiah, it says that the, uh, um, that the Earth is the Lord's, and he, he created it with a purpose. And that purpose was for him to get honor and glory out of it. And that's exactly what he does. And what you see unfolding, as we call history, is really God unfolding to get his plan to where it, he wants to be. There's a great verse in Psalms, that I think, Psalm 76.10. And it says, Surely the wrath of men shall praise thee. And boy, that is a, that is a key verse of understanding history. Because uh, that's exactly what God does. We look at history and we see the dark times of it or the times that our history books tell us are very bad and we look at it at a very dark period of time. But God says that, uh, that even the wrath of men is going to praise him. In other words, God's going to take everything that man does 
And a lot of times we get focused on the circumstances of people in history who have great power and do great things, even if it's bad things, uh, on a global scale. And yet we fail to see that in all of that, God is still in control. And that's really what you have here. Roman Catholic Church ran the world for 1,500 years, but she never totally could run away and do what she wanted to do with. God used her to be the slingshot that when he was ready and he had his Bible perfected and everything came to the right point that, um, you know, he would sling it to the world. Here's what you got to look at. I never saw this until this week when I was putting this thing together. But notice the comparison. When God wanted to make the strong nation of the nation of Israel, what did he do? He put them down in Egypt for 430 years. And they were under the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt down there for 430 years under the rigors of, of slavery. And then when he was ready, when they were ready and he was ready, then what was Egypt? Egypt was the slingshot by which he catapulted the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land and established them uh, as his nation. Well, that's exactly what he did with the church during the Dark Ages. He used the Roman Catholic Church to be the persecutor to toughen them up, get them ready, build them to the point where they were everything that they needed to be, and then at the right time in God's timing and God's timetable, then he slingshotted them except uh, to the world this time. And that's basically what you got to, those kind of things are the things you got to keep in your mind of what's happening. It helps put it into a perspective that you just don't get just from studying history. So God opens the door, and the Bible says that no man shuts it. And, uh, and I told you, I think, last time that this is the prophecy of Genesis chapter 9 being fulfilled where the Bible says that God will enlarge Japheth and he will dwell in the shents of Tem, sh- <laughs> tents of Shem. <laughs> yeah. Now you get this down because I ain't food speeding you. <laughs> anyway. I think we left off last week, and rightly so, with the Mayflower bumping into a Plymouth. <clears throat> and uh, we know now, and these are the things that I want you to see. I, 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 I don't want just to teach you church history. I want to take you behind the scenes and show you what's going on in church history. That's what's missing today. That's what you don't get. And yet, those are the things that I did, and those are the things that really helped me uh, get it and understand it. So when the Mayflower groups hits Plymouth, uh, we we know now that they come to this they come to this country for one reason and one reason only. They are looking for religious freedom. The Roman Catholic Church had pretty much had Europe sewed up, and there was nothing that they can do. The Reformation uh, was a and we we studied the Reformation and I took you behind the scenes on the Reformation and I showed you how the Reformation was what it did. But then I also show you what it didn't do. It didn't bring about the, the great uh, Philadelphian church age. It just allowed, it allowed the ones who were already doing the work just to move out of Europe. And it was a lot like, like I said, Egypt being down, or Israel being down in Egypt for 400 years. And they come to America to escape the persecution from any church state setup that they're going through. And I think this is where we ended last week. I told you from about 1629 to 1640, 
over 30,000 people come from Europe and England, and we see God opening up the door to uh, the greatest nation that the world has ever seen, and I believe personally that God had plans for, and we'll talk about that when we get into it. It's not long after they get here that I think a very important paper document is, is written, and the uh, Mayflower group, they organize themselves into some kind of civil organization, and they write what is called the Mayflower Compact. And the Mayflower Compact um, is very, very, very important to understand. Uh, when they write it, the first thing you want to know is says it doesn't say anything about Social Security, uh, women's liberation, gay rights, you know, the IRS, civil rights, uh, you know, pluralistic societies. It basically states that their sole purpose of coming to the United States and uniting together is to glorify God and to advance the Christian faith. That is such an important factor for you to understand that is lost today in, in our history. And in 1638, not 20 years after the landing at Plymouth, uh, the first American constitution was written. And nobody talks about this anymore. It was written over 100 years before the one in Declaration of Independence, as we know it, was written. And this is called the Fundamental Orders. And this was in 1638, over 100 years, uh, almost 150 years before when the Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution was written. But you don't hear anything about this. And it was called the Fundamental Orders. And it basically stated that all civil authority is derived from God and his word. It further stated that elected representatives should frame a body of laws for any community based on the word of God. It also stated that election was not a matter of someone's arbitrary preference, but votes cast according uh, to the law and the will of God. And they cited uh, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, which is a great verse in itself. It says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, which is a great verse. It also stated that all liberties granted to people were so that they could seek God, seek God's guidance, and do what God wanted them to do um, in the book of Acts, as was laid out in the book of Acts. And, of course, how far we have come from this today. And, um, you know, you hear today that, that, that God, that we have, uh, we have certain rights from God, that, you know, civil rights, human rights. And the truth of the matter is, we don't have any rights from God. There's nothing in the Bible about human rights. There's nothing in the Bible about civil rights. The Bible was, the Bible was in favor of slavery. I mean, try to lay that out today. I mean, God put a book in the Bible in the New Testament that uh, when, when, when his chief apostle was dealing with a runaway slave, he didn't hook him up with the NAACP or get him to, to the organizations against slavery. He told him to go back and be a good slave because back then they understood that we didn't have any rights other than the right to die and go to hell. And when God saved a man, that was what true freedom was. Freedom from sin, not freedom from slavery or freedom from, uh, from the other things that we, we build it into today. And by the way, every man that signed this document, the uh, Fundamental Orders, uh, and later the Connecticut Orders, which was another set of papers that followed the same line, every one of these guys believed that the infallible word of God that they were writing about and stating about was a King James 1611 authorized version. 
It just was a, and I can't impress this to you enough, it just was a lot simpler back then than it was today. Well, maybe it isn't. It, it, it appears to be, if you understand that it's not, uh, because the, the, the ability to understand what you're dealing with, it, it's still very simple, but it's, it, it, it clouds people because people don't have the fun, fundamental understanding of what they need to do. But, you know, when you look at all this and you see how this country was formed, America, uh, without a doubt, is the strangest piece of ground in the world uh, outside of the nation of Israel. And it's always amazed me uh, the parallels between the two. I mean, you never read about it in the Old Testament. It's almost like God kept America hidden, uh, or at least the, the, uh, the whole other side of the world hidden. I mean, there were people that, uh, you know, that they, they, you never read about America in the Old Testament. There's no real explanation about America, exploration of America till, you know, the 1400s. And, uh, and she never becomes a Roman Catholic Church state. And yet, everybody who sailed to America, this is the baffling part, everybody that sailed to America that explored America was Roman Catholic. There wasn't one Protestant, other than the first ones that were Protestant were the, you know, the, the Mayflower group. But they didn't come to explore. They come to set up a, their, their, their life here. But every explorer that explores America and, and comes to the New World is Roman Catholic. And yet in spite of that, the Roman Catholic Church never gets a foothold on, on America. It never becomes it never becomes a church-state religion in any way, shape, or form. And we're going to see why that is. And I think it's important to see that. America and the nation of Israel are the only two nations uh, any place in history that basically start the exact same way. They both have God at the beginning, and they both have uh, the Word of God. And they both come out of severe persecution, Egypt in, uh, Israel and Egypt, and America out of the Roman Catholic Church. It's a situation where they both have a civil war that splits their nation north and south. Uh, Israel, after uh, Solomon, the kingdom gets split by Jeroboam and Rehoboam, north and south. We, in our own civil war, uh, that split our nation from north to south. And um, it's, a, it's an incredible concept. And it's no wonder that we see the greatest preachers, probably that the world has ever seen, come out of not only England, but also America during this time, uh, as it's incredible. And our, and our study would be, we'd be sinning if we did not uh, take the time to study the lives of these men and, and the women. Now, i got a book here that, if you ever can find this online, uh, uh, get it. It's um, when I was back in Ohio and uh, at the Canton Baptist Temple back in the 70s, uh, our church back there, which is a huge church, it's probably three times this whole parking lot uh, in size, and they decided back then, a number of years ago, to put in what they called the Christian Hall of Fame. And what it was is all through the church, you walk these halls, and they had pictures with bios of all the great Christians that down through history. It's a very unique idea. And of course, uh, from that, a guy from Springfield, Missouri, who was connected with the BBF, Baptist Bible College, his name was Elmer Towns, he's dead now, he, uh, he wrote a book based on that, on the pictures. 
And uh, the irony of all of this is, is that originally when they started it at the Baptist Temple back in the, uh, in the uh, late 60s, uh, they had uh, the paintings were commissioned to be painted and Ruckman did all the paintings. And uh, he was the guy that did all of the paintings in there. In fact, you'll look through this book. Many of these still have, uh, yeah, all of them do pretty much, if you can see them, still have Ruckman's name on them where he, he did them like he does his drawings. And he did the painting for all of those. Once that church, by the time we got to my heyday there, which was in the 70s, 73, 74, 75, and the church had pretty much turned away from the King James Bible, uh, the first thing that they did was start having all of Ruckman's paintings replaced with somebody else that painted them. And that's what they did. But this book came out, uh, and it's called the Christian Hall of Fame. And what it is, it's a bio. It, it opens up. Uh, I mean, they were $2 back then. So, I mean, if you can find them. On, and I think, I think, and if you find these online, I think there's a, a volume two. And I would love to have volume two. So if you find volume two and you decide you buy one and there's two of them, get me one and I'll pay you for it. But they got to be dirt cheap. I mean, if you could find them at all, I, you'd probably, they'd probably pay you to take them. But he breaks it down in here, uh, and it's not an exhaustive thing, but it's a great reference library for some of them. And you're going to see, because I'm going to read some of this to you tonight. Uh, part one is the Apostolic Church, and that deals with Ignatius, Polycarp, Tertullian, John of Antioch, and Patrick, uh, St. Patrick. Part two would be the Church Through the Dark Ages, and that deals with uh, Columbiana. Part three deals with the Church in the Reformation. That'll be Wycliffe, John Huss, Savonarola, uh, Hubemeyer, uh, Martin Luther, Zwigli, Menno Simons, William Tyndale. Part four deals with the expanding church. That'll be also part of the Reformation. That'll be Calvin Knox, Roger Williams, Richard Baxter, George Fox, John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Brainerd, John Newton, Francis Ashbery, William Carey, Crispus Evans. And then it goes on. I mean, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. There's 60 more throughout the book. Yeah. $35. There's $5? $35. $35. That's not, did you find volume two? I may be wrong on volume two. I can't believe that they're $35. Man. Wow. Who's got them for $35? Well, one person. I bet that if we all bid on it, it'll probably go up. Are they in Ohio? Doesn't tell you where they're at. It's been out of print for 30 years. They only made one run on them, and they just sold them in the store, in the church. Nobody wanted them. Um, and it's, it, it's a deal where, is this something you can scan and do off on your thing, John? Uh, yeah, it would take a while. It would take a while, yeah. Bob, what year did they make it? Is it saying there? It was four ninety five when I bought it. Um. Copyright 1971. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a copy of it in a Library of Congress. gives a catalog number. You could go there and you could steal it. Nobody would probably miss it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. You can always ask God to forgive you later. I mean, don't wait too long. The Bible says, let not the sun go down on your sin or something like that. But, but anyway... 
I'll show you. I'm going to talk about some of these guys that are good. And it, you know, I'll tell you where you might find us. There's someplace over at Steele's, you know, bookstore. That might be a place to look. I don't know, here in town. Uh, there's probably a whole bunch of them floating around Baptist Temple back there with the old folks that died in their state sales, you know. I mean, because that's the only place they sold them that I know of. I mean, no, I don't know even nobody else that bought them. How many they got there? One. Only got one. Huh. Well, but like here, here the first guy we're going to look at is a guy by the name of Richard Baxter, and these are some of the great preachers that you need to you need to know who they are and just a little bit about them. He lived 1615 to 1691. It says Richard Baxter was born in Rowtown, England. His parents were poor. His early education was limited. Later, he attended school at at Rockster and read with Richard Wickstead at Ledlow Castle. Uh, his eager mind found abundant nourishment in the large library of the castle. Later, he, persu- uh, he was persuaded to enter life in, uh, court life in London, but returned home to study theology. While reading theology with local clergymen, he met Joseph Simons and Water, uh, Walter Cradock, uh, two uh, famous nonconformists whose piety and fever uh, influenced his con- him considerably. In 1638, he was appointed master of free grammar school in Dudley, at which place he commenced his ministry, having been ordained and licensed by John uh, Thoroughborough, a bishop of Worcester. His early ministry was not successful, but during these years he took a special interest in the controversy relating to nonconformity of the Church of England. Now that'll be what we've been talking about, uh, how that people don't like the Church of England going back to the Roman Catholic Church, so they're going to break out, and he's one that does that. At one time, he served as chaplain of the army. <coughs> After the Restoration in 1660, <coughs> Baxter went to London and ministered. There was chaplain to King Charles II until Parliament passed the Act of Uniformity, which required all clergymen to agree to everything in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And this is exactly what they're doing. They're bringing everything back under that. Uh, Baxter refused and lost his position as chaplain and bishop of Hereford. In addition, he was prohibited from preaching in his parish and from 1662 to 1668, he was continually persecuted. He, retire, uh, he retired to uh, Acton in Middlesex for the purpose of quiet study and writing. While there, he was arrested in prison for conducting a, a, a service. His most memorable words at this time were, I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. That's a great, great statement. In 1685, he was accused of libeling the Church of England. In one of his books, his trial was regarded by many historians as one of the most brutal perversion of English justice in history. And he was again in prison during the years of oppression. His health grew worse, and yet he was most productive years as a writer. His books and articles flooded uh, England. Finally, in 1691, ill health, aggravated by 18 years in prison, caused his death. He had preached before the king, the House of Commons, the Lord Mayor of London. His prolific pen had produced 168 theological and devotional works. His saintly behavior, uh, great talents, and wide influence added to his extended age. He raised to a position of unequaled, unparalleled uh, reputation as an English uh, divine in conflict of liberty and conscience. And a lot of times you find these guys, this is what happens. God, they get persecuted, they get thrown into prison, but they continue to write. And though they're not doing ministry because they're in the Huskow, their writings are going out in flooding places and other people are getting it and they're ministering that way. Um, George Fox, 1624 to 1691, he's a, he founds the Quakers. And all of you have heard of the Quakers and most of you have seen, you know, old movies or whatever that somebody is a Quaker. And they called them Quakers because of the fact that they shook and shivered under conviction through preaching, see? So they called them Quakers. 
And that's where they get, a lot of these churches that are biblical churches get their terms. Uh, there was a group called the Dunkards. And they were called the Dunkards because they baptized their people by dunking them like we do. So they're called Dunkards. And uh, George Fox started the Quakers because the preaching was hard, it was right to the point, and it convicted people. And people got under conviction, and they're under conviction, uh, they were called Quakers. Jonathan Edwards, 1703, 1758. He preaches barely in the the New Colonies. He is probably one of the two men that uh, were the single force and driving force uh, behind the foundation of this country. Jonathan Edwards, in fact, let's read a little little bit about him here. Uh, That'll be worth looking at here. He'll give you a better bio than I will just going through it. Jonathan Edwards, especially known as a leader of the Great Awakening. Uh, Edwards was born in East Windsor, Connecticut, October 5, 1703. His father was a minister there for 60 years. Jonathan was the only son among 10 daughters. The whole family was well-educated, and they helped Jonathan to gain remarkable uh, uh, intellectual uh, f- uh, faculty at an early age. When 10 years old, he wrote a, a semi-humorous tract on the immateriality, uh, immateriality of the soul, he entered Yale College in 1716 and only 13 years of age. He struggled with God's absolute sovereignty, considering it a horrible doctrine, until the last year of college when it came uh, to be for him exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. His conversion followed shortly after graduation. He was ordained in 1727 in Northampton, becoming assistant to his grandfather. Uh, he spent 13 hours a day studying. Uh, Sarah Pyrepoint, age 17, became his bride that same year. She was the daughter of James Pyrepoint, a founder of Yale, and the great-granddaughter of Thomas Hooker. Now, you got to remember that Yale College, along with Boston College, and along with uh, uh, the other colleges at that particular point in time, were Bible colleges back then. Uh, Princeton, Dartmouth, Yale. When they were started, they were started as Bible colleges back in the 1700s. And they were training men for the, to be missionaries to the American Indian. That's their original start. And they've come a long way from that, but that's what their original start was. Um, Edwards viewed the pastor as one who should act as a prophet by expounding the laws of God to the unlearned. He resolved not to make it appear as if it was much read or was uh, con- with books or with a learned uh, world. His preaching technique was unemotional as possible, putting a little fervor into his messages. He would use vivid, common illustrations to forcefully convey scriptural teachings. Uh, The sermon, and this is the one that he's most famous for, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, state the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loath of insect over the fire, abhorred you and is dreadfully provoked. And Edward's first great revival began in 1734 at Northampton. He himself wrote an account of this revival, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God, 1736, which was published in England and on the continent. In 1740, the colonies were engulfed in the Great Awakening uh, revival of the great preacher George Whitfield. And because of Edward's viewpoint on membership in the church and also the backwash of the revival, the church at Northampton disposed him. He delivered his farewell sermon on, on June 22nd, 1750. I actually stood in the church at Northampton where he preached that message, um, Sinners in the Hand, at the same pulpit that he preached it in. And uh, I had to never forget, uh, I opened up the pulpit top to look in there, and the pastor that had preached 
uh, had through put his sermon in there that he had just preached the day before. We were there on a Monday. And I opened up, just kind of just looking around, and there was, he, he, had, he put the sermon in there. And when I took the sermon out, uh, it was a woman preacher. And uh, it was all social stuff, you know. And I thought to myself, boy, he'd be rolling over in his grave if, uh, if he knew this. But Jonathan Edward was one of the great, great, great men, along with George Whitfield, we'll talk about in a moment, who really forged the founding fathers and brought about the Great Awakening. We'll go through the awakenings at some point. I'm not sure where it's at in my notes, but there's so many dimensions of this. But that he, that you, you know that this country, you will know when we're done, that this country, America, went through seven Great Awakenings. And the first Great Awakening was under the preaching of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And uh, they were both contemporaries. They lived during the same period of time. And they both really, really uh, tore this country up and really uh, did everything to, to set this country uh, when the founding fathers put together the Constitution and put together all of the things that uh, it, it had come out of, the Great Awakening. And what happened was this, just about the first awakening, and this is so true. This is like the book of Judges. You'll find that, um, that they, the pilgrims came over, 1620, they get going, they get the stuff going, they get their plans, all these things are moving, they start developing, and then behind them comes the teaching out of Europe of Unitarianism. And it begins, to, it begins to take the edge off of what they were doing, and it begins to work its way in, and they begin to lose sight. So what God does, he raises up two men, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and probably you could put George Tennant in there too. These guys really, really, really brought this country back to the fundamental principles of the Word of God and got them out of the lethargic unitarianism that was, that was coming into America out of Europe. And, of course, uh, we see that once that awakening happened, then they start to lull back into the same kind of lethargic mindset with something else. God sends them another great awakening. And it just moves right across this country from the East Coast to the West Coast. Um, And the last great awakening, uh, we'll talk about it when we get into it, the last great awakening started in 1950. And... uh, there, there will be no more. The next great awakening will be the trumpet and he'll be in heaven. Another great one guy during this time is John Wesley. And uh, you know John Wesley and probably also know his brother Charles Wesley who wrote many, 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 many uh, 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 hymns in our hymn book in there. And uh, John Wesley was a preacher. And it's an interesting thing that he's unsaved. He comes over to the United States because he hears of the great revivals of Jonathan Edwards and particularly George Whitfield. So he comes to get in on it, sails over from England, comes to the United States, totally flops. I mean, it is an absolute waste of his time and money to come over here. He absolutely flops. And the reason why he's flopped, because he's not saved. He's part of the you know, he's part of the system over there, and he comes over. He's a good guy, but he just, he comes over, and uh, while he's here, while he's here, he's, uh, you know, he sees what's going on, and he obviously got under conviction about it. He goes back to England, and on the way back to England, an old Moravian missionary that is working on one of the ships that he's sailing back over on gets a hold of him and witnesses to him and wins him to Christ. And from that point on, his whole life has changed and his whole ministry has changed. And uh, he's the 
forerunner and then begins and starts what we know today as the Methodist Church. Now, here is another one. The Methodist Church, when John Wesley got saved and started the Methodist Church, he just didn't go out and say, what am I going to call this? I'll call it the Methodist Church. Why? Because I saw all kinds of Methodist churches back there in America. No, there was no Methodist churches. There again, that was a term when he broke, when he broke with his established churches, he broke because they were, they were formalistic and they were ritualistic and he knew that was wrong. And so he broke from them to be a, a preacher of the gospel and to lay it out. And because he did not have the formalism of the other churches with all the pomp and circumstances, they accused him of having no methods. See? So that's where the term from, Methodist. A Methodist is somebody that was accused of having no methods. When I say no methods in the sense of no formal decrees in the churches where everything, you know, goes by the clock. You know, you all sit down, kneel down at the same time, stand up at the same time, you say the same prayer in the prayer book and all that. And he, he, was, he was called a Methodist because he had no methods. So, you know, those are the things that you need to see. George Whitfield, 1714 to 1770. Uh, an incredible, incredible guy. I mean, uh, he's called uh, in his day the Prince of Preachers, and I know that there's been other preachers that have been called out down through history. He's the first one. George Whitfield was an incredible individual, and uh, he, uh, along with Jonathan Edwards, but even more so than Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield was the guy who really, really set this country on its ear. And wherever George Whitfield went, God went with him. And boy, he tore the he tore the colonies to pieces with the preaching of a King James 1611 authorized version. And uh, you'll find that, uh, that uh, and I've told you this before, in, uh, in one place in Boston Commons with a park there, he preached one sermon back in the 1700s and over 30,000 people were saved. He alone, uh, probably in his preaching, had more influence in the founding fathers than anybody else. You know, again... Going down through history, and I know we'll jump ahead here for a second. You'll see this again later on. Back in the early 1900s, they had what they called prohibition. And prohibition came about, uh, which prohibition, by the way, was a complete uh, outlawing of alcohol. And uh, there was no, no alcohol at all. And this country went into a state of prohibition. Most people don't understand, it was repealed some years later, but most people don't understand that prohibition came in through the preaching of one man, and that man was Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday, uh, by his preaching, in the day and age in the early 1900s, 1920s and that in there, through his preaching, one man through his preaching, absolutely shut down every bar and, and put booze into the back room and bathtub gin and everything that went along with it, brought in the Roaring Twenties. But it was done by the preaching of one man because he had such an impact and power uh, in a country that still had its roots in the Word of God. And he did in the 1920s with the politicians to get, I mean, could you imagine trying to go uh, get, get before Congress and the government to ban anything today? But that's the power that he had, and there was still a nation that still wanted the principles of the Word of God, and they got it done. And it forced liquor where liquor belongs, and that's with the gangsters and, uh, you know, in the, in the, behind the locked doors, and uh, that's where it went. But it was a thing that he did in the 20s, what, what George Whitfield did uh, in the 1700s. 
and George Whitfield shaped this country and the politicians. There wasn't one writer of the Constitution, from, from uh, George Washington to Thomas Jefferson to Ben Franklin to James Madison to anybody that was not influenced by the preaching of George Whitfield. They weren't all saved. George Washington was a deist. He didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God. Thomas Jefferson was not saved. Ben Franklin was not saved. You're going to find that many of the men that were our fathers were saved, Daniel Webster being one of them. But you're going to find that uh, William Penn being another one that the state of Pennsylvania is, is named after. But you're going to find that even the unsaved men had such a respect for him and for what he did that they, they may not have been saved themselves, but they had a respect for God and they knew the Word of God was the true thing. So they had no problem forming this country around those basic principles, even though they were not saved themselves. And it's an, again, he's an incredible guy. One guy that you've got to always remember in history is George Whitfield. Uh, David Brainerd is another one. We've talked about him many, many times, 1718 to 1748. And uh, he uh, is a missionary to the American Indians. He marries Jonathan Edwards' daughter. And uh, it's a thing where uh, David Brainerd, if you would look at it from, a, from the, uh, the modern day that you evaluate ministries, would have been a total flop. He dies at 29 years of age of tuberculosis and uh, consumption. He spent all of those years out there in the woods of New York and Pennsylvania trying to convert the American Indians. There's no record of one convert that he ever had in all of the time that he spent there. And like I said, he died as a broken down old man at 29 years of age. And yet David Brainerd kept a diary. And in that diary... Uh, journal, uh, he laid out his burden for the American Indians, and he talked about the things that he went through, how he would pray under the great pine trees of the New York woods, how his fever was so bad that he would pray for two or three hours in the snow, kneeling down, and the fever in his body was so bad that it would melt the snow into great puddles of water. And he, he laid it all out, and he wrote such an exact journal that even though he himself never really accomplished anything, the, the Journal of David Brainerd was published sometime after his death, and it was men like William Carey, who went to India, Robert McShane, who went to the nation of Israel, the Jews, and then a guy by the name of Henry Martin later on that went to, also went to India. Their call to the mission field, and they literally won the countries to Christ. I mean, I can't, we'll talk about it when we get there, but they just absolutely turned their nations upside down for the cause of Christ. And the thing that spurred them on and got them to the mission field was reading the journals of David Brainerd. And again, the writings of Guy. And this group, you'll find, you know, great men whose names uh, were never never thrown about. There never were in the great Hall of Fame pictures like we talk about. You find men who the average person don't even know who they are. But they, uh, you know, we talk about the Whitfields and the Wesleys and the Brainerds uh, and the Jonathan Edwards, but there was literally thousands, tens of thousands of men and women who are named only unto God, who carried the work out and did the work and some of the lesser-known ones are guys like Thomas Webb in 1724 to 1796, Samuel Seabury, uh, 1729 to 1796, Christian Swartz, 1726 to 1798, 
uh, Thomas Rankin, 1738 to 1810, Henry Martin, who was a great missionary to India, 1781 to 1812. These men, you never hear anything about them in most annals of church history. They're not even listed in most books of church history. But these men take the pure word of God and keep his word, uh, as Revelation chapter 3, verse 8 says that they do in the Philadelphian church. And literally, it goes around the world three or four times. As this group comes across the Atlantic and settles in America, they come to find uh, religious freedom to worship God that they couldn't find uh, in Europe. In 1639, just what, um, 19 years after the pilgrims get to this country, uh, John Clark, he, he starts the first Baptist church in America in Newport, Rhode Island. Now, when you go and you study history, the, the designation or the honor of starting the first Baptist church uh, in America usually goes to Roger Williams um, in Providence, Rhode Island. But a number of years before Roger William ever started the church in Providence, John Clark plants the first Baptist church in Newport, Rhode Island. And, uh, but John Clark, and the reason why that is so important, and it's very interesting because it gives the link that we need going back to church history as what God is doing through the Baptist and the whole concept. Uh, because uh, John Clark was from the Dutch Mennonites, which can trace their roots to Holland, which where the groups that we have already studied called the Waldensians came from. So what you've got is the link through John Clark to establish the first Baptist church through the English Baptist and the Dutch Baptist. And uh, these European groups that start the Baptist movement in America is right down the Bible line as the Bible has taught us so far from Antioch. And they are within the true biblical line that runs right back to the Waldensians. And uh, we talked about the Waldensians. They were one of the greatest Bible-believing groups uh, throughout the great persecution of the Dark Ages. And all these groups that Rome had tried to wipe out uh, in Europe during the Dark Ages are now showing up in America as Baptists. And uh, it's because, as I told you, that when you follow the progression down through church history... We looked at the Novations. We looked at the uh, groups that were named after the men. We looked at the, uh, uh, the groups that followed the individual men, like the Nestorians, uh, the Novations, uh, the people that were following a man. And when the churches began or when the Christians began to deviate from the truth, these men stood up and said, no, we're not going to be part of that. And when they were criticized and their people stood with the men who were their pastors, those groups were called heretics based on the man that they followed, the Novations. Uh, and, you know, I gave you all of the names of it uh, as we came through there. As time went on in, in the next three or 400 years, as, as Christianity spread through Europe and the Roman Catholic Church came into power uh, and we entered into the Dark Ages, we saw these Bible-believing groups had gotten so much larger. So now the enemy, the Roman Catholic Church, which is now firmly established, is not calling them by the men that they're following. Now they're calling them by the geographical location in which they lived because they're so large. So in France, they're called Huguenots. In Italy, they're called Waldensians. In North Italy, they're called Lombards. In, uh, in, uh, in Czechoslovakia, they're called uh, uh, Bulgarians. Uh, and now it's, they're named after the geographical part of, the, of Europe that they live in. As time moves on and we get to the end of the Dark Ages, 
and we move into the beginning of the Philadelphian church age in the 15 or 1600s, again, they have become so large that now it's not even feasible to link them by any geographical location because they're all now everywhere and they're all believing the same thing. So what they do is they call them now uh, by the doctrine that they've all united against, and that is, and I gave you this before, Pedro Anabaptist. In other words, Pedro being a little child, uh, Anna against baptism. In other words, against infant baptism. And of course, later on, they're called Anabaptist, and then a little bit later on, by the time they start popping up in America, uh, they're called Baptist. So it shows you that the true Baptist movement shows up in America, comes from the right line and the right stock. And that is absolutely crucial for you to see that. Because it shows you that within the Baptist mindset, somewhere exists that true line today. And I realize that today that the Baptist church are just like, for, the, for 99.9 of them, are just like the idiots out there that, uh, and everything else. But within that concept, that is where the true line exists today, if it exists anywhere. Jimmy? It was somewhere, it, there's no way, it wasn't like, okay, it's today's Monday, they're Anabaptists, tomorrow's Tuesday, they're, they're not Anabaptists. It was a, through a progress of just procession that, that uh, it, it, around the 1600s, you still find places in this early 1600s where they're called Anabaptists, but by the time they're coming into America, they're called Baptists. But there's, there's no exact time, date, place, decree that, that does that. And... Uh, all these groups that Rome had to try to wipe out, they're now popping up as Baptists. And uh, along with them, we see the, um, the other groups that uh, when, the, uh, uh, when the Puritans and the Episcopalians and the Lutherans, they try to bring in their church straits in America, and they do, uh, they can't get a foothold. And this is incredibly important that you see this. These groups were the old line Puritan and Lutheran groups that had split with Rome, and uh, the true line is again persecuted. And this is why you find in history the witch trials at Salem, Massachusetts, which nothing more than the Puritans, which were just as bad as the Roman Catholics, persecuting anybody who did not follow their line of, of super uh, and boy, they are talking about legalism. That is about super legalism as you can get. And anybody that was not with them was against them. And that's what the Salem witch trial was all about. The Salem witch trials was nothing more than the Puritans killing people who were Bible believers because they would not accept what the Puritans were teaching in their ecstatic teachings. Therefore, they labeled them as witches. And uh, it, it will go to show you what people will do in their piety and what people do in their self-righteousness uh, in the name of God. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And so you find that there are groups that came over, the old line Puritans, the Episcopalians, and the Lutherans, they tried to set up church-state systems. They tried to get a handle on it, uh, but, the, uh, um, but it just couldn't happen because what was going on was America was a big country. And there was plenty of room to move around. It wasn't like Europe. Europe was all landlocked nations. There's nowhere to go. And when the Roman Catholic Church ran all of Europe, there was absolutely no place to go. If you were in Germany and you were being persecuted by the Roman Catholics and you went to France, bad move. 
If you went to Spain, bad move. If you went to Italy, bad move. There's nowhere to go. Rome had everything showed up and locked up. She'd had this thing running for 2,000 years, and she had it locked down where she was in control of everything, politically and religiously. Bah, but when they come to America, that's not true. America is such a big place. If you got persecuted one place, you just moved farther out west, and you went the right direction, and you, you found all the places you could be where nobody ever was. They couldn't get everybody corralled. The diversity of the people themselves. You couldn't get... You couldn't, get, uh, you couldn't get a foothold on it to start a, a, uh, a church state. And basically the Baptists spread out like melted butter. And uh, they set up churches in North Carolina by 1727, all through New England by 1639, in Virginia by 1780, and Indiana in 1802. Uh, by 1790, there were 42 Baptist churches in Georgia, 18 in Tennessee, 10 in Kentucky, all from the true line uh, background. And the, the, the church-state setups came over. You had Puritans here. You had Lutherans here. But like in Massachusetts, when the Puritans were, were persecuting the Baptists and whipping the Baptists or wherever they were, they just moved and went west. And they found places where they could teach the Bible and do what they wanted to do. By 1838, there were independent Baptist churches in Alabama, Iowa, Texas, Arkansas, Wisconsin, uh, Ohio, and Missouri. And of course, uh, one of the churches in Ohio that uh, I'm connected with uh, just by coming out of that time period was a church in Ohio in Cincinnati called Landmark Baptist Church. And Landmark Baptist Church was pastored in, in my day by a guy by the name of John Rawlings. John Rawlings was one of J. Frank Norris's boys. And uh, it's called Landmark Baptist because it is the first Baptist church in Ohio. And it goes all the way back. I think Ohio became a state in 1803. And uh, that Baptist church was started there before Ohio was even a state. And uh, John Rawlings, he, I think he's probably dead now. He was an old guy when I was went around. But uh, he was the pastor there. And old John Rawlings is one of the few guys that uh, would never back down on the King James Bible. Where Harold Henniger, the Canton Baptist Temple, where I went to church, he, he reneged on the King James Bible. Where, uh, you know, most of the guys around the country did renege on the King James Bible. There were guys that did not. And John Rawlings was a guy that uh, absolutely would not. John Rawlings was an old preacher up from Kentucky where most of them came from, because that was the Bible Belt down there. And a lot of those guys down south moved up north and came into Ohio, came into Pennsylvania, come into uh, Michigan and places like that. And uh, you're going to find that many of the Bible-believing powerhouse churches in the early 1900s and up in my day in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s were churches that those guys came up uh, around the time of World War II and started churches up there. And they're all out of the South. They're all out of the Bible Belt down there. And uh, they're all mostly out of J. Frank Norris. When J. Frank Norris splits from the Southern Baptist Convention, and we'll look at that when we get to that point in it, he takes all these guys with him. And J. Frank Norris, as is, is problematic as he was and as many goofy problems that he had, uh, he was absolutely right down the line on the King James 1611. And God used him to preserve uh, the King James Bible, or otherwise we wouldn't even have it today. And most people don't realize that. If it wouldn't been for these guys here holding the line with the Bible, 
and, um, and coming to the place where they did what they did, we'd be swaddled up in some gigantic organizational Baptist, Southern Baptist mess or American Baptist mess, and we wouldn't even know there was a King James Bible out there by now. You know how long that's true? Because you sitting here tonight and the people in our church are in a very small, minute minority in Baptist churches today. 99, I guarantee you, 0.999% of the Baptists in this country have no idea where their roots came from and no idea what the true Word of God is. And that all is because of some men that held a line that um, basically are looked at and ridiculed today because people are so asinine and stupid they don't even know where they, they got their Bible from. And that's exactly why you can't fall into that category. And old John Rawlings would, boy, I'll tell you what, he would tear the paint off the wall. And he, was, he was an old country preacher who built a church that uh, to this day, you know, is uh, uh, in history, is, is, is a powerhouse in the time that he was there. Like all churches, his son took it over when he died, and his son does not believe the King James Bible is the Word of God because he was educated out of his intelligence, so the thing goes into apostasy. That's true of all those churches. It's a trend that you see when, from my standpoint, because I, I bridge that era. I come out of the last of the Philadelphia and into the lay of the sea. And I saw the Akron Baptist Temple with Dallas Billington. It was another one. Dallas Billington was run 10,000 in Sunday school in 1976, 1975. 10,000 in his church in Akron Baptist Temple. You know what he was? Never had an education, never went to Bible college. He also comes up from Kentucky. He's also one of J. Frank Norris's boys. And he just goes and starts a church with a book that he believes that can do it. And at the heyday, the Akron Baptist Temple back in the early 70s was running 10,000 in Sunday school. The old man dies. He died about 74, I think it was. I remember when he died. And when the old man died in 74, his, uh, his son, Charles, took it over. And, of course, the boys who take over the works from their father always take the work and bury it in the ground. You know why that is? I'll tell you why that is. Because they took something over that they never labored and sweat in and built themselves. So they get something that daddy built, and because they grew up in its shadow and never had any part of it, they never got the thing, and they couldn't appreciate what they had. And so Charles Billington, he no longer believes the King James Bible is the Word of God. So it goes to pieces in that sense. That's true of every aspect, and that's why if you're a pastor and you're going you're gonna to have to pass off the scene someday, you make sure that the guy that gets your church is somebody who come up and did every dirty job within the church and wasn't somebody who just got handed to him on a silver platter because they'll never appreciate what they get. But by 1838, there were independent Baptist churches everywhere in, in what we know as America at that point, and that would have been up out to the Mississippi River, uh, and uh, everything beyond that was out west then. The thing that saved America from becoming a church-state system like Europe is its size and the diversity of the people who came over. As I said, it wasn't like Europe, small countries where Rome had 2,000 years to corral everybody in. The groups coming over were so diverse and the country was so big that no one church could get control. Uh, and that was, the, and that was the thing was growing by leaps and bounds. The Baptists didn't believe in a church-state system, and they're the ones that are growing uh, the fastest growing church in denomination, if you want to use that word, uh, was the Baptists, and they didn't believe in a church state setup. And um, 
And so it was an incredible thing. And also there was a lot of this going on. You don't hear much about this, but it wasn't like in Europe where, it wasn't like in Europe, and I don't advocate this, but I'll just tell you, it wasn't like in Europe where they, uh, uh, you, you, you had to be afraid, you know, because somebody could come into your house in the middle of the night and you couldn't have anything to say about it. There was a lot of Baptists and a lot of people who were Bible believers that when some of these church state people came in and tried to do something with them, they just blew their brains out right on the spot. They, uh, they didn't take anything from them. These guys were pistol-packing preachers. I mean, they, uh, you know, they wasn't like in Europe where they had to be afraid. They defended what they had. Couldn't do it in Europe, but they could do it here. And you show up at their house, you know, I mean, they didn't have cars back there, but uh, I guarantee you on their buggies when they went into town, there was bumper stickers that said, you're going to have my flintlock when you pry my cold dead fingers from around it. <laughs> Something like that. But they stood up for what they believed. And there wasn't anybody going to take it from them. So when the church state people started to bully them around, they bullied back. And um, it just, uh, that's just the way it was. And these groups coming over were, uh, were, were just didn't, couldn't get a foothold. In 1632, a Roman Catholic by the name of Lord Baltimore, he tried to get a Catholic church state set up in Maryland. Now, and here's how it works. This is what God kept doing. God kept tearing up the turf that nobody could get a handle on it. And this is so important that you see this. Because God's got plans for America, and he's not going to let the Roman Catholic Church get a foothold in it, nor any other church state set up. He's got this land reserved for Bible believers who are going to take the Word of God to the ends of the world. Here's what he knew. He knew that England, as good as she was, was only the springboard to the world. He knew that England was a little island nation and did not have the natural resources to do what it needed to be done. He needed a nation that could carry on after England by which the natural resources and the land itself was so gigantic that it could become the strongest nation in the planet for God's glory. And that's the plan that he had for America. Didn't work out, but that was his plan. 1632, Lord Baltimore tried to get the Catholic Church in the state of Maryland. We know it as Maryland. That's what they wanted. We know it as Maryland. Maryland. Lord Baltimore, the capital of Maryland is, yes, you guessed it, Baltimore, named after Lord Baltimore, Roman Catholic. Uh, they tried to get a charter to set up the Roman Catholic Church to make Maryland a church state, that the whole state would be Roman Catholic. That's why they called it Maryland. They wanted a land for their Mary. The more the merrier, I guess. I'm not sure how that works. But what God did is the Anglican Church made Maryland a royal colony uh, before they could get that done, and there was no way they could get, it could get it accomplished. In other words, God kept tearing it up that nobody could get a foothold anywhere. Nobody can set up a religious foothold for the two reasons. The country is too big and the diversity of the people. Um, uh, and God sets the stage for raising up the men who keep this country from the mistakes of Rome uh, by the great preaching of a King James Bible. They're everywhere. So you got three or four things working. You got preachers who are tearing this place apart preaching the King James Bible. I mean, everywhere. You got national revivals. You got the founding fathers of our country believing that there's only one Bible and the only true faith is the faith that the Baptists were bringing over. And, of course, you have the church-state setups, and none of them want. Every founding father knew what had happened to them in England 
under King George with the church-state setup. And they weren't going back into that thing. But they tried to set them up. But the preaching of the, of the King James Bible, the hard preaching, the revivals that God is bringing, the diversity of the people that are here, and the land being so big, they just can't get a foothold on it. See, they had 2,000 years in Europe. When you go back to Europe and you look at that thing, you, we saw it when we studied it. Rome comes into power about 100, maybe 200 years before Christ. Rome stays in power up to the time of Christ, all the way up. We saw a change at Pergamus with, where it went from the pagan Rome to papal Rome, and we saw Constantine bring it in. Then it stays in power in Europe. She runs Europe for almost 2,500 years. She has absolute control of Europe. She had 2,000 years to build that. She doesn't have that in America. When they come to America, everything's on even ground. The Roman Catholic Church has had her spine broken, and the Bible believers are coming over across this country, and they're preaching everywhere. The land is too big. Nobody wants to go back to a church-state setup, and God's Spirit brings a great awakening. Can't get a foothold. Can't get a foothold. And... Uh, it was the broken ground of this diversity and all of the things that God is tearing up that the great preachers uh, sow the seed of the Word of God in. And the guys like Whitfield, Wesley's, Jonathan Edwards, Gilbert Tennant, their preaching fell uh, and brought the fruit uh, in the first real revival to America. And this was called, you know, the Great Awakening. And as I said earlier, you're going to find that there's seven great awakenings uh, within the American history, and we'll go through them in time. But right now, we've got to get the background and to just see some things that bring us up to this time. Now, up to this time, 1700, uh, we've seen the establishment of America. Now, it's only in the colonies, but she's established. And we have seen the Bible-believing groups and the split-offs from the Reformation groups come over and set up North America uh, with a King James 1611 authorized version. We, everything is completely in place now. But before we go into the Great Awakening, which we'll get into next time, I want to stop for a moment and I want to show you, and we've got to see uh, the great missionary movement that's coming along with this. It's just not God bringing it into America it's England is sending them out to the world, and America begins to send them out to the world. And uh, this is what it means, and you don't want to miss this. This is what it means in the book of Revelation when it calls this church the church of the open door, that no man can shut it. Now, the Philadelphian church period represents, as we talked about before, the church of that open door. While the church finds, what it finds is, it says in there, and I think it's in chapter 3, verse 8, the key of David. The key of David is the Word of God. The key of David in your Bible is Psalms 119, 176 verses, each one of them telling you something different about the Word of God. That's the key to David. No question about it. This church finds the key of David, sticks it in the lock on the door, turns the lock, the door opens up, and doors in the Bible are always a picture of opportunity, and the gospel goes to the world. And, of course, this is why this is called the Church of the Open Door. They got the right book. They got the right spirit. And uh, we see that everything is moving in the right direction. I told you when we started our study in church history that the direction of the Holy Spirit of God going down through history will be from east to west. 
So we see now England, and then it moves from England east to west to America. And then it moves across America, east to west, and it keeps moving out from there. And um, during this time in the missionary movement, Church of the Open Door, your King James Bible is translated into over 800 major languages by 1850 and literally takes the world by storm. The Bible goes around the world about three or four times as the open door church enjoys the favor of God. It first comes with England. And England, because of her stand for the book in the next 400 years during this period of time, makes colonies all over this world. She's got them on every continent. And, of course, the saying by 1900 is that the sun never sets on the English soil. And yet England itself is a small nation. It's not much bigger than, uh, you know, one of our, uh, one of our states in, in, in the United States. But she has provinces and colonies all over the world. And wherever England went, England's missionaries went. And wherever England's missionaries went, King James Bible went. This is why you'll go around the world today in places like China, places like Africa, places like uh, uh, in the Far East, uh, Indies, and places like that, where you will find, actually find that the people speak English. And they, they're taught, they speak English because years and years ago, when the British missionaries went there, they set up schools and to teach them reading and writing and all the basics. And when they taught them to read, they taught them to read from one textbook. And that textbook was the only textbook that is the best textbook to teach anybody to read because every word in it, about 98% is one-syllable words, and that was a King James 1611 authorized version. That's what they learned to read English on. I mean, give me a break. Take a young child with all of its tenderness and all of its ability to absorb. I mean, if you're around any young kids at all, kids have an amazing ability to absorb things. You know, you can put a child and you can put him in a home where they speak two languages as a baby, and that child will grow up understanding both those languages just like their, their native tongue. You know why? Because young kids can absorb things. The older we get, the harder it is to absorb things. The more you got to work at absorbing things. You get to a point where you don't absorb, you desorb, or you can't remember things. But kids don't have that problem. Now, what is the beauty in taking a kid to read and to write and using a King James Bible by teaching him the method of reading English. Now, what is the beauty in that as far as not only teaching him to read, but teaching him to read the book of God, which is going to impact his soul to the point that's going to make all the difference in the world? I mean, they understood the format in an incredible way. And not only were they looking at evangelizing the people who are out there, they were going to make sure that those young generations, when they came into their English schools, and their, and their orphanages, that they learned, to, they learned to read and write. And the way they learned to read and write was from a King James authorized version. They started from day one to let those young kids absorb the fact that what they had in their hands and they were reading was the Word of God. And I wonder where a child would be today if, when he got, if he got started everything he did with the Bible and learning the Bible and learned to read and write from the Bible. And that was his only source of material. You think he'd grow up being an atheist? You think he'd grow up being uh, worldly? No, he wouldn't, see. They had the right method. They had the right method. And uh, it's no wonder that during this time we see the greatest host of Bible-believing witnesses the world has ever seen. Uh, and it would be impossible uh, to list uh, all of them and all of the preachers, but, you know, we need to look at some of it. 
By 1900, the British Foreign Missionary Society was turning out 32,876 King James Bibles a day. 32,876 King James Bible in different languages a day. And during the 1800s, there were at least 10 more Bible societies doing the same. There was the Baptist Missionary Society. There was the British Foreign Missionary Society. There was the Church Missionary Society. There was the Scottish Missionary Society. There was the London Missionary Society. There was the Glasgow Missionary Society. All of these had been formed out of England to take the Bible out to the world. And England now, as a seafaring nation, Spain has been debunked at the, at the uh, sinking of the Spanish Armada, England now, as a seafaring nation, goes all around the world. And these missionary societies are pumping out the Word of God. Uh, they're pumping out the Word of God in all these different languages. And the men sent out from there in these missionary groups literally tear the world apart. The Philadelphian church age at its height, and I would say its height's probably in the middle of the 1800s, probably would be safe to assume that three-quarters of the world was one to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I mean, time, time just, time forbids us to be able to go through it. But boy, it's something that you've got to try to grasp. It really starts with the early groups. You remember back, and the pattern for missions was established in Germany with the pietist groups, which were the Moravians. And you remember we talked about that a couple of sessions ago of, of Count Zindendorf. And he's in Germany, in Dresden, in 1700. And he breaks from the Lutheran church because of their going back to Rome. He's a great landowner and has a lot of property. So he sets up, he sets up a, a Bible place where they're going to teach the Bible. He gives refuge to a group that are called the Moravians, who are a Bible-believing group who are being persecuted by the church state of Lutheran church in Germany. So he gives them sanction, uh, a sanctuary on his vast prop property. They get in and start together, and they begin to start up a missionary training society that sets the pattern for missions from that point on. The birth of the Moravian movement is in August 13, 1727. In 20 years' time, they started more missionary works than the Anglins and the Lutherans did in 200 years. They were very aggressive, very aggressive. And they sent out men uh, to, to, to India. Uh, they sent Christian David to uh, Greenland. Uh, August Spangenberg went to Georgia. And during this trip, Spangenberg witnessed uh, to uh, John Wesley. And later, John Wesley on the boat going back was saved. You'll find that uh, Zindendorf, uh, his saying was, I have one mission, he and he alone. They made up a coat of arms, and on that coat of arms, there was an ox standing by an altar with a plow on the other side. And the motto underneath in German was ready for either. In other words, their, their, their creed was that they were ready to be hitched to a plow and plow the fertile fields of this earth sowing the gospel, or they were willing to lay down their life on the altar as a sacrifice. And, of course, the Moravian missionaries are legendary. 
And, of course, there was the Moravian missionaries that when they were finished, they got a one-way ticket. They set the pattern for what mission should be. Mission should be that when you go to a country, and this is where God has called you, that you become part of that country. The average missionary in America today, the reason why missions have failed in America is because they have forsaken the greatest pattern of missionaries uh, found anywhere in church history. And that would be the Moravians. You're going to find that missionaries today, when they're, when they're called out of a church, they go, to a, they go to a mission school someplace in the United States. They're talked about and laid out and given all the parameters of, of what they're supposed to do and how they do. They're taught that you go to the mission field and, uh, you know, uh, you go there for two or three years. And then uh, you come back on furlough and then you go back. You take a year off, and then you go back, and you, come, and you stay for another three or four years, and you come back, take a year off, another furlough, and they, 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 it's like a job to them. And, it's, and of course, uh, this is why missions never get done. Missionaries are taught today that they always are to maintain the fact that they're American uh, citizens. Let me tell you something. If God ever called me to the mission field, here's what I would do. If God called me to wherever he called me, what I would do, if I was sure that was my calling, then what I would do is I would cease to be an American citizen. I would t- apply for a citizenship wherever I was going, wh- wherever I was going to be. That's where I would be. And uh, you would never see me again. I wouldn't be back on furlough. I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't come back to, uh, and most missionaries have to do that because it's a political system and you get eight or nine churches that, that support you or 10, 20 churches that support you. So you got to send back reports, you know, you make up the stories of, uh, of uh, you know, how uh, so-and-so got saved and, and all these things to, to keep the money rolling in. Uh, you know, the bottom line is this. I'd start a church wherever I went the same way I started this one. You go, you carve out a spot, you go to work, you start witnessing to people. If you got to get a job to support yourself, then that's what you do. And then you build the thing up till you get enough people that you can put into it full time. And then you get the thing going and you make the thing work. You don't ever think about going back. This is now your life. You adopt their culture. Forget about the 4th of July. Forget about all the Thanksgiving. Forget about all the American holidays. If they have Pagooska Day where they eat duck, you go to Pagooska Day. You become whatever they are. The greatest missionary pattern was Jesus Christ himself. When he came down to this planet at the incarnation, he became one of us. He adopted our culture. He ate our food. He wore our clothes. He did everything that he come from a foreign place where it was holy. He came down to a place and became just like us right up to the point of sin. And he adopted our culture. If you would have looked at Jesus Christ and looked at Five other people that you could not have told them apart because they all wore the same clothes. They all looked the same way. They all talked the same way. He identified with our culture. That's what the Moravian missionaries did. They knew if you you were going to reach the people, you had to become one of the people. I could take you down to Mexico and show you that missionaries to Mexico, they get eight or nine missionary families down there and they live in a little compound. That compound is their American piece of ground they took back with them into that foreign country. They'll have an American flag up. They'll walk around with their suits on, with American lapel pins on. They'll try to get them to sing American songs, uh, hymns. 
they'll, uh, they'll have their little missionaries together and they'll celebrate 4th of July. They'll celebrate the American holidays. They live in a little compound that makes them still Americans, and then they wonder why they can't penetrate the culture of the people that are out there. Because instead of going and becoming one with the people, they brought their little America down with them, and that's the way they operate, and you can't do that. If you're going to reach them, you've got to become one of them. When God wanted to reach me, he had to become like me. And that's just the way it works. The Moravians understood that. That's why when they graduated, they got a one-way ticket to wherever they were going. There were Moravian missionaries, that, and, and the slave trade was really big back then, where they were going to Africa and bringing the slaves over and selling them in the colonies and all around the world. And there were, there were Moravian missionaries that had a burden for the black slaves that actually sold themselves into slavery for the rest of their lives so they could be a missionary and win the slave to Christ. You know why? Because they understood what real freedom meant. They understood. They understood. Patrick Henry said one time, give me liberty or give me death. The next generation after that said, give me liberty. Our generation today just says, give me. Give me. That's the where it's at. You have William Carey, 1761 to 1834. He's called the father of modern missions. He's called to the mission field by a little booklet called the Periodical Account of Moravian Missions. See, he reads what the Moravians had done and it motivates him to be a missionary. He taught himself six languages while working at a cobbler's bench for his father. Then he left for India where he worked for 42 years. He translated the King James Bible into 44 languages and dialects. Carrier's motto was expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. From his labors, we see the Netherlands Missionary Society, 1779, the British and Foreign Missionary Society, 1804, the American Board of Commission for Foreign Missions, 1810, the American Baptist Missionary Union, 1814, American Bible Society, 1816. They all came into being and all, all put out the same Bible, a King James 1611 authorized version, right up to 1904, thereabouts, when the door closed and the Laodicean church started. William Carey was one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen. He'd never been to Bible college one day in his life, never passed any mission board. He simply had a book that he believed and read what the Moravian missionaries had done and used what they did as a model. You know how I build this church? I believe a book. I go back and find the men in church history that knew what they were doing and built the churches the right way, and I follow their model. Same thing. Same thing. It's the same thing. Samuel Mills, 1806. He felt the call to the missions and he gathered around him uh, three, three or four guys. James Richard, Francis Robbins, Harvey Loomis, Gordon Hall, Luther Rice. These were his friends. And they met every day after they worked in the fields of their father's farms around an old haystack at the back of one of the barns. And there they prayed for the conversion of the heathen. They later became known as the Haystack Group because their continuance to pray for the heathen of the world and in the winning of their souls to Christ. They were joined later by Adonai and Judson, 
Samuel Newell and Samuel Knott. From 1817 to 1883, they preached to the American Indians and then later split up and went all over the earth. Every one of those men that I listed to you, we'll talk about a little bit later on as we get down into some things. Every one of them, wherever they went, whatever country they went to, tore the world upside down. Not one of them had a college education. Not one of them went ever through any missionary board or any missionary approval. They had a burden in their heart and a Bible in their hand, and they met in a haystack for 10 years praying for the conversion, and when God was ready, he sent them out. You have old Billy Bray of Cornwall, England, 1794 to 1868. He was saved from a life of deep sin. Billy Bray is one of the greatest studies you'll ever study. You had to read his diary or his life of Billy Bray. It's incredible. And after being saved, he begins to witness for God to the people in the British Isles. He never preached any great campaigns, but he's a steady, shining light to all that came into contact with him. He was an avid soul winner, He used to say that people said, I'm a madman, but they meant I'm a glad man. He used to walk around in his style and witness it was different than most people. He said, I'd walk around and I lift my left foot, my foot screams out, uh, amen. And when I lift my right foot, it screams out, glory to God. As I walk down the roads of life, lifting my feet, walking, one of them says, amen and glory to God all the way down the road. Story of a skeptic one time says, oh, Billy, when you die, what are you going to do when you wake up in hell? And Billy said, well, when I wake up in hell, he says, you know what? I'm going to walk around and my left foot's going to say amen and my right foot's going to say glory to God. And I'm going to walk around the pit of hell saying amen and glory to God. And then the devil's going to come up and said, Billy Bray, you can't talk that way down here. You're going to have to leave. That was Billy Bray. When his wife died, his name was Joey. He danced on her bed, praising God and singing that she had gone to be with God. An incredible guy. Robert Morrison, 1782 to 1834, missionary to China. When he got there, he found two enemies already at work, the Jesuits of the Roman Catholic Church and the East India Company. He lived in a cellar and produced a King James Bible in Chinese and other dialects. The list is endless. Joshua Marshman went to India, Samuel Marsden to New Zealand. After his death, a man by the name of Bishop Sewan took over his work, and he started that, He stated that the whole tribe of people that he worked with had converted, converted to Christ. You had Peter Parker, who went to Canton, China. Samuel Knott went to India. William Greenfell to Newfoundland. Henry Martin to Persia. Hans Engel to Greenland. Alfred Shaker to the Cameroon Islands, uh, Francis Gardner. He sealed his fate um, as a mission and is called a mission by starving to death on Pitkin Island off the shores of Patagonia. That'd be the Falkland Islands today. These men believed what God said when he penned the words over there in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, where Christ is not named. And off they went. You have John Getty, 1815 to 1872, went to the new Herbides Islands. He paved the way for John Patton. His life work reads like a Tarzan thriller. When he landed in, on the island, there was no Christians. When he left in 1872, there were no heathens. I mean, uh, the Philadelphian missionaries just go on and on and on and on and on. You have Quinlan Bagley 
in Rio de Janeiro. J.L. Shuck in China. A.L. Jones went to, the, uh, to Libya. Dr. W.N. Coates set up the Baptist Church in Rome and from there sent missionaries into Malin, Venice, Capri, and many other places in Italy. And not even old Roman Catholic Spain escaped the onslaught of the King James Bible of the Church of the Open Door. W.J. Knapp opened a Bible church in Madrid. That old book goes around the earth over and over again. You have Ananias Judson to Burma. Robert Moffat spent 51 years in Cape Town, South Africa. George Mueller opening up the great uh, orphanages in England. David Livingston. He traveled 9,000 miles in 16 years in a continent in Africa that had not ever, ever been, been explored. It was David Livingston that you hear the uh, uh, the famous story that you you know of of uh, of, of um, the New York reporter uh, Stanley went to find Livingston because nobody knew where he was. He just went off the end of the earth in Africa. He explored places where they had never been, and the New York Times reporter Watson went to find Doctor Livingston. And uh, when he finally finds him, uh, Stanley finds him, uh, he's over there, he comes around the bend, and he finds a white man in the middle of Africa, and the, uh, and the, and the cliche from that point on, Dr. Livingston, I presume. And of course, uh, Livingston spent all of his life in Africa. When he died, uh, the Africans cut out his heart and buried it in Africa before they sent his body back to England. He's buried in Westminster Abbey. Stanley, the New York Times reporter, was so impressed by his life that he got saved, and he took over the work of Stanley in Africa. You have Hudson Taylor, uh, the Adagian Judson Gordon, uh, and then Jonathan Goldfarb. Uh, you had C.T. Studd, who worked from sunup to sundown in China, Africa, and India. And uh, his ministry and zeal was unbelievable. He preached and taught the King James Bible while in England and tearing it all up and all through those countries while in England, Westcott and Hort were tearing it apart and coming up with the RSV. Uh, his great uh, message uh, he preached was nail the colors to the mast. And uh, he uh, saw his wife uh, two weeks in a 13-year period. I mean, these guys were incredible. So when you start to see the Philadelphian church age, you understand what God is intending to do. We've seen everything develop in Europe. I told you when we started our session tonight, just as Israel went down for 430 years into Egypt to be forged into the nation, and then God slingshotted them out to become the nation that God wanted them to be, God sent the church through 1,500 years of persecution by the Roman Catholic Church. Then he orchestrates the events to break the back of the Roman Catholic Church through the Reformation. He kicks the door wide open. And these Bible-believing groups, not the Lutherans, not the, not the Presbyterians, not the Reformers, the Bible-believing groups that were being pressured now spread out all over the earth. And they take with them a King James 1611 authorized version. It ushers in the founding of America and the preachers. God using those preachers to preserve for America for what God is going to do with America. And then England takes it to the ends of the earth through the great preachers and the great missionary society. And this is why it's called the church of the open door. And this is what God is doing primarily in this Philadelphian church age. He's actually taking the gospel around the world three or four times. And that's why the Philadelphian church, the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. And as we come on down through this, you're going to find that Revelation chapter 3 is almost step by step what God is doing. But you also got to remember that toward the end, he gives them a warning. 
that there's an hour of temptation coming, and beware that no man takes thy crown. And we'll see how that develops here when we get into it here in the next couple of times. So we'll hold up there, and uh, let's have a word of prayer. And we'll keep moving along through this thing, and we'll keep adding dimensions to it. And I think you'll try to get the whole picture here of what's going on for too long if you haven't got to figure it out already.